Welcome to the weekly podcast channel for the Wilmington Church of Christ. We hope that this channel inspires and encourages you to take the gospel to all people, transforms hearts to be like Christ, and trains disciples to make disciples. For more information about our church, please go to wcconline.org. Enjoy the message. You know, anytime we have pain or suffering, or we feel like our life is out of control, we tend not to be able to think of anything else. Try it sometime. If you want to test this theory, have your son drive over your toes with your car. You may not be able to think about anything else in the moment but the pain. I think we can get distracted by that same kind of problem in our everyday life. When things are chaotic, like right now, and your future feels insecure, you might have this puzzling question. Um, Like, this is the second time in almost 10 years you've been let go from your job because the economy has taken a hit. When those types of pain hits you, whether they're emotional or physical, we may be asking the question, is God really in control? Imagine how the Christians who lived during the book of Revelation must have been feeling, or maybe even questioning God. You know, they had heard that the kingdom of God had started because Christ has resurrected. But the Roman armies seem to be ruling everywhere that they go. And the resurrection proves the love of Jesus, but Christians are still being put into prisons and hung on crosses. Now, 11 out of the 12 apostles of Christ have passed, and the ones Paul had written to and called saints in the kingdom are being trampled by those who are more powerful. And they were confused, and their life was chaotic, and they were dealing with a lot of pain, and they were asking themselves the same type of question. Is God really in control? John doesn't give the answer straight away. In Revelation chapter 1, John is reminded by Jesus about who we are, priests and servants of God, bought by the blood of Christ. And then he reminds us who we worship is Jesus, God, who walks among us. And he's more powerful than anything we can imagine. And then in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus reminds the Christians that he knows them intimately, where they live and what they are doing, and he encourages them to repent and turn back to the way because there's a reward for those who remain faithful. And then in chapter 4 and 5, and now we're up to like 20% of Revelation being written, John reminds us that all of creation and all the angels above worship Christ, who is God who not only is victorious, but he rules all of creation that he created by his will and pleasure. So John has answered the question, is God really in control? And the answer is he is. But that then leaves us asking other questions. And so in Revelation chapter 6, at the opening of the seven seals and the first set of the three seven-part acts of judgment, He lets us know what we can expect as Christians in this world between the two arrivals of Christ, his resurrection and ascension, and his second coming. I love how one preacher said, We don't need Christ to tell us that the world is full of trouble, but we do need his explanation of history if its troubles are not going to be meaningless. A friend of mine who served in the military ended up working in Kosovo for NATO not long after the Kosovo War ended in 1999. And the war... Even after the war ended, uh, there were several atrocities that were still happening. And for a while, my friend wrote daily in a journal of the terror that he would see and stumble upon in his travels. He wrote almost daily of rapes, murders, arsons, and dead bodies. 
and he said he eventually had to stop journaling. He thought the writing would help ease his troubled mind and heart, but what he found was that the writing actually made things worse for him. And so we're posed with the same questions the people of John's day were asking. And it's not the first time we've seen these questions. Does God's love and redemption work at this point in time in our history in which we live? Is God's love and redemption only something that is ahead and for the future and will only be accomplished in that future, or is it working right now? Another question that I get all the time, are we living in the last days? Jesus gives us the answer in a message he reveals to John by opening the scroll. The vision John is allowed to see and write about gives us a heavenly perspective of history and helps us understand the tribulation our brothers and sisters in Christ are enduring all over the world and the trouble we have to endure too are within God's sovereign control. There are four things that the seals reveal about God, his authority and will, his patience and plan, his judgment and wrath, and his protection and glory. Let's take a look in, in Revelation chapter 6 and see how the first scrolls, the first seal of the scroll reveals God's authority and will. Remember, the scroll is how any king would tell of his will, his desires. And this scroll is the will and desire of God, the king of the world, about how history will unfold. And God is bringing justice and order to the chaos that we feel. And we need to hear this word from God because it's a message of warning for those who do not worship God and a message of hope for those who do worship God. There are seven seals on this scroll, a piece of melted wax holding the contents secret and safe until God's ambassador, the one worthy to break the seals, reveals and carries out the contents of the message. Some will teach that these are seven successive phases of history, but I don't think we should try to read them in chronological order. In fact, trying to read Revelation as a chronological timeline makes things much more confusing and leads, leaves us more dis, in more in discomfort than if we read Revelation with the idea that God is repeating signs over and over again, not only to make his point, but to make clear that the intensity of what we may have to suffer will be worth it when the final victory is revealed. So the first of the seven seals is how history works and takes us all the way to the end of the world and to heaven. Same thing that the seven trumpets do and the same thing that the seven bowls do in chapters 6 through 16. Jesus uses one of God's most famous teaching methods to say the same thing from a different perspective for a different purpose. And they all disclose God's will and authority. Jesus is the one who opens the seals and Jesus is the one who sends out the riders of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And Jesus is the one who gives them authority to do their work and it's Jesus who leads the way. Here's Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. I watched, and that's John talking, I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Later, we will see in Revelation 19 that this rider is Christ. 
In 19 verse 11, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. That's one of the keys to interpreting Revelation. We look for how something is used within Revelation itself, and then we, if we can't find our answer, we turn to the Old Testament to see if any of the symbols have been used there before. And it's here that we see Christ is leading the way for God's judgment. He is the rider holding the bow and given a crown and riding the white horse. Remember, Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Jesus comes first in all of our thinking and actions. The world is in conflict, and our Messiah is the first on the battlefield. The people of John's day needed to hear this. As they suffered, they needed to know Jesus was with them. The Psalms sing of this rider in Psalm 45. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty, and in your majesty ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Psalm 45, 3-6. Remember in this moment, as we start cheering our victor and start shouting, Yes! Go get him, Jesus! Remember how Jesus conquers. How does Christ conquer? Because his ways of conquering don't change in spite of the symbol. Him riding on the horse, revealing his victory ahead of all judgment of God, just declares that his ways of victory work. He conquers by riding into cities on a donkey by allowing others to mock him and crucify him, and then he gives them forgiveness. This is the way to victory that Christ calls all Christians to. It's the, re it's the way to reward and life. And now we have our Savior leading the way. The judgment of God is coming, issued by God's decree, called by the four living creatures who have been given authority from the throne who say, Come. And verse 3 continues. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword, a great sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands, in his hand, then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. There's the number four that John uses, and we know in apocalyptic literature that the number four is this symbol for all of creation. It, it is four acts of judgment. Four horsemen to patrol all of the earth. And uh, there are four riders of those four horsemen. 
the judgment is being carried out to all corners of the earth. You ever heard of the four corners of the earth? And the judgments are led by Christ preparing the way, but all of earth is troubled by these riders sent from God. This judgment sent from God. And this has been going on almost since the beginning of time. There is not a moment in history where nations are not bent on conquest, and they use war to get their way. Or when war begins, there's not a moment in time when the financially poor don't suffer the worst of it. That's what it meant when it took a day's wages to buy just one meal. But the oil and wine are not touched. The rich are not affected as much. And when war and famine happen, death always follows close behind. But because Christ rides out first, he prepares the way to use even evil for good. This is God's authority over everything. He even has the power and the will and the wisdom to use evil for his own purposes. The four horsemen, peace taken from the earth, people killing each other, followers of Christ suffer and die, the poor will suffer, and they're not completely out of food, but they're barely making it, and starvation is found here, and then death comes. And those not found in Christ are swallowed up in Hades. All that, all those destructive powers, they're evil. They're not in God's original design, but God uses evil for good. We're taught the same truth after Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He's lied about, he's left to rot in prison for years until finally Joseph, after enduring faithfully, is set free and put in charge of all of Egypt, saving the people from death because of his wisdom. Joseph tells his brothers when he sees them again, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This is the same truth we're taught when we encounter the history of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. The cross is an evil, terrible torture device, and death is the enemy. But God used death to defeat death. Doesn't the scripture say, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds... We are healed. God has always taught us that he uses evil for good. I like how one preacher paraphrases Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 this way. Still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain, to use evil for good. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life and more life. Therefore, God says, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his shoulders the sin of many, and he took up the cause of all the black sheep. Isaiah 10 even reminds us that God uses tools of destruction to bring about his judgment on both his own people that refuse to repent and the evildoers that never come to him to begin with. When God stretches out his hand in judgment, it's terrible. But he's also in authority over that evil, and it's within his will even to limit it. We learn this all through Scripture, but it's most clear in the story of Job, where Satan wants to hurt Job 
And God allows it, but he limits the evil that can be done. Even in Revelation chapter 6, when these four horsemen, these patrolling spirits of judgment that God sends to roam the earth, even they are limited in what they can do. Look at verse 8. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When John says and uses that symbol of one-fourth to describe the limits of destruction and evil that is allowed, he's letting us know, number one, judgment is not complete, but number two, God has limited the evil and what they're allowed to do because he is still in control. The first four seals reveal God's authority and will. And the fifth seal reveals God's patience and plan. Look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. White, used in Revelation, is often associated with victory. This seal, this fifth seal, is both terrible and disturbing to me. One, because I've never really undergone the persecution that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have had to endure in other parts of the world. But the fifth seal also tells us that Christians do suffer and die during these tribulations. And their prayer as they wait in heaven is that God would avenge their deaths, that he would not let their deaths be in vain. And he promises that he's going to make all things right. But he is patiently unfolding his plan. And those who have died for the cause of Christ and those who are dying today for the cause of Christ have to wait patiently in the presence of God until the time is fulfilled. Why does God wait? Well, there's two reasons. He wants more people to be saved, and he has a plan that he is going to fulfill. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And there is a number God has in mind. And if God has a number in mind, and he knows what that number is, then that means he has a plan in place. The plan to bring the most people possible into his kingdom. The most people to be saved. The most people to be part of his family forever. Re remember what Jesus said before he ascended into heaven from John 16. He says, all this I've told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It gives me a little comfort that Jesus tells me ahead of time that Christians have to endure suffering like he did while we live on earth. And it gives me a little bit more comfort to know that Christ has overcome the world by enduring faithfully and then receiving his reward. 
And it gives me great comfort to know that I can be with him both now in the kingdom that he has established on earth and forever in the kingdom that he will establish in the new earth and new heaven. And he's not only given me a robe of victory, but he's going to bring his judgment onto all who have brought about suffering for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember the message in Revelation, and especially during the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, is a message of warning to those who do not worship God and a message of hope for those who do. If God is still waiting on you to repent, what are you waiting for? It's time now. Turn back to him. Revelation 6 tells us that God is waiting on you patiently, but he won't wait forever. And he promises those who have died holding on to truth, he promises them that their time of victory has arrived, but their time of justice is coming soon. God's patience for you is great, but he will not be patient with you forever. Have you given your life to Christ? Have you repented of your way of life and turned back to him? He promises those who have died that their time for justice is coming soon. But he could have just said, wait one verse. Because in verse 12, we see the sixth seal open and the end of the world and God's final judgment has arrived. The sixth seal reveals God's judgment and wrath. Here's what it says in verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17, this is so important to the whole text of Revelation. This is the question Revelation asks. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is the same judgment and wrath that the charge of Jesus led from the beginning of time on his white horse. But instead of more time for people to repent, by the sixth seal, the time is over. John uses the number seven here to show us that there will be complete judgment over all creation and over all people because he lists seven parts of creation. In apocryphal, apocalyptic literature, and here in Revelation, 7, uh, Revelation 6, excuse me, it's a number of completion. The earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens, the mountains, and the islands, all of creation is falling under judgment, as well as all of humanity. John uses another set of seven for mankind. The kings, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, the slave, and the free, they are all coming under the wrath of the Lamb. And they ask a terrible question that I hope that you can answer with confidence. They cry out as they see their judgment coming, the great day of wrath has come. Who can stand? That's the question we find in all Revelation. But in the next seal, seal number seven, God reveals to us who can stand in that great day of judgment. 
the judgment that Jesus brings. When justice is finally given and everyone gets what they deserve, this message of warning for those who don't follow Christ and the message of hope for those who do is wrapped up in the seventh seal, the end of time. Judgment is complete. Who can stand? Here's what the seventh seal reveals about God's protection and his glory. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. What we have here is we're back on earth now. And before we were in heaven, but now we're back on earth. Uh, we were on earth for the judgment of the humanity and creation. And these are the ones that can stand. Then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Anytime in Revelation that John or Jesus uses the term Israel, he's talking about the new Israel, the people of God, the people who have followed Christ. And in the midst of all the chaos and all the judgment at the end of the world, God's people, his people, Israel, are secure. And the ones that can stand are anyone who comes to Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, marking them for pickup at the second coming. It's kind of like luggage tags. When Jesus comes back and he sees all of us who are waiting for him, it's like he goes over to the luggage retrieval rack and all those who are marked as his, he picks up and takes home. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. The ones that can stand are those on earth who remain faithful. And Jesus reminds us that those who are faithful, he is going to come back and get all of them. That's what the symbol of 144,000 means. That it's those who are the servants and priests in his kingdom that can stand. And he is going to collect every single one of them. Not one will be left out. And we know it's the kingdom of priests and servants because the tribe Dan is missing from the list. And in the place of the tribe of Dan is the tribe of Levi. God's people who serve him as priests and servants is represented there by Levi. Levi wasn't a tribe. He didn't own any land in the promised land because he served God in his temple. And John takes, takes us all the way back to chapter 1 and then to chapter 5 and reminds us that the people of God are those Christ has bought with his blood and, have, and he has made them into priests. Who can stand? Those of us in Christ. There's one more group that can stand and be victorious, and that's found in verse 9. Let's read together. 
After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? John answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Let's come back to that part in just a second. Let's end with, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The others who can stand are those who have suffered and died during the tribulation while they were on earth. When's the tribulation? The scripture says that it is all the time between Christ's ascension into heaven and when he comes back the second time. Are we living in the end times? The answer from scripture is a resounding yes. And we will be in the end times and alive during the tribulation until Jesus returns. Go to anywhere else in the world and talk to Christians who are suffering and dying and being raped and being killed and ask them if they feel like they're being trampled on. But those who are faithful even unto death, those are the ones who can stand. And what happens to those? They go and stand in his presence, in the presence of God, and they continue to serve him as priests and servants. And now they have no more pain or suffering or death, but only joy forever. And that's where we pick it up in verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is where Revelation could have ended. There doesn't need to be any more said about what will happen when Jesus comes again or how history works or even the question of, is God in control? This, these seven seals reveal how we are supposed to live as history is going on all around us. Remain faithful because we know that Jesus is leading the triumphant judgment and Jesus is ready to take us home and Jesus gives us the power to stand and Jesus will allow us to be in his presence forever with no more pain, no more sorrow, just joy forever. This isn't where Revelation ends though. Jesus wants to reveal more to us about his will, his authority, and how we are supposed to live in these end times. And so we're going to see this process of taking us all the way to the judgment at the end of time repeated through the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And Lord willing, we'll study the seven trumpets next Sunday. In the meantime, we're told in Scripture how to live and how to respond. And Jesus gives us a great way to remember that he has victory in the cross 
and he allows us to respond to his call and his presence every time we gather together in what he calls communion. When he met with his disciples, right before he went off to die for us, he was reminding them that he is going to have victory through death. He was reminding them that he is going to be faithful all the way through death, and then he will receive his reward and be able to share that with us. And so he told his disciples, every time they gathered together, remind themselves of his death and resurrection by participating in communion. Would you go on and get your bread and your cup out so that you can participate in communion together with Christians all over the world during this time when we gather to worship Christ and what he's doing? Take your bread out and we will eat it together. And we will declare the victory Christ bought us by sacrificing his body on the cross. He held up the bread to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat and remember me. Would you eat the bread now and remember the sacrifice Christ made for you? And then after dinner, Jesus took the cup and he held it up and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood. Would you take and drink and remember that I purchased you through my sacrifice. I covered over all of your sins and made you whole and right with God, declaring you not guilty and preparing for you a place in heaven. This cup reminds us to stand firm in our faith, even to the point of death so that we can have victory in Christ. Would you drink the cup and remember his sacrifice for you? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the scripture that reminds us that you give us victory. Lord, I thank you for that time of communion that reminds us through your sacrifice you give us victory. Lord, help us to unite ourselves to you and your victory and your victorious way of living more and more. Allow revelation to reveal to us your plan for our lives more and more. Help us to take it to heart and obey it. God, we seek to be like you and we praise you that you give us a reminder that you're going to come back. You're going to come back and get us. So help us, Lord. Strengthen us and help us to remain faithful even in the midst of chaos, suffering, or even death. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Before we go, I want to offer an invitation. For all of those who are receiving the message of hope that you're following Christ, I invite you to stick with Christ. Be strengthened by his suffering, death, and resurrection, and know that he will strengthen you when you suffer as well. And he will enable you to stand. He promises it. But for those of us for those of you who are receiving the message of warning that if you don't worship Christ, you are in danger of falling under his wrath and judgment. This is an invitation for you to come to Christ. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior and your Lord, would you make that known publicly? Would you write it in the chat room or send an email to church? And we want to help you take your next best step to be with and in Christ so that you can enjoy the victory of heaven 
with all of us. Now's the time to do it. You can even uh, text the word CONNECT to our number, 937-382-0904. And I would say from the scripture and from the warning Jesus gives us, don't wait another second to commit to Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, be encouraged because he is in control. He has authority, and he's going to give us protection and glory if we remain faithful. Until we meet again and gather again as a congregation, a people of God, I look forward to that time of worshiping with you again. If this message has inspired you or encouraged you, we would love if you shared it with a friend. To help support ministries like this one, go to wcconline.org slash donate.